Good morning. If you have your Bible with you this morning, please turn to Second Peter chapter one. This morning we'll be looking at verses eight and nine. But before we begin, please stand with me as we read God's word. As we've been doing every week, we'll read the entire chapter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his, very, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from, from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In 1952, Florence Chadwick attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the California coastline. Catalina Island is is located about 21 miles off the uh, coast of Southern California. And this channel between the island and the coastline is known for its cold water, strong currents, and often foggy conditions. And Florence was an accomplished long-distance swimmer. Prior to this attempt, she had successfully swam across the English Channel on multiple occasions, becoming the first woman to swim swim across the English Channel in both directions. So if anyone could accomplish this, it was her. On the day of her swim, Florence had a team that followed her in a boat. 
providing her with support and monitoring her progress. As she swam, the conditions proved to be incredibly challenging. Along with the cold water and strong currents, a thick fog settled in that challenged her endurance and mental strength. As she swam, the fog became so thick that she could hardly see the boats around her, much less her goal, the coastline. At one point, Chadwick grew so exhausted that she asked to be taken out of the water, but her crew urged her on, telling her that she was approaching the, the shoreline. So with an encouragement, she swam on for a time. After over 15 hours of swimming, Chadwick finally reached a point where she felt she could not continue any longer. She was exhausted, physically drained, and mentally fatigued, and couldn't make herself swim any further. Her crew pulled her out of the water onto a small boat, and there she learned that she was less than a mile from the shoreline. And after the event, at a news conference, Florence said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Over the past couple weeks, we've seen from 2 Peter 1 that our growth requires our effort. Last week, last week, Paul talked about the fact that our justification is accomplished by God alone. But he made clear to us that our sanctification is God's work through us. It requires our effort. And this effort involves diligent hard work. Like the farmer who's been given all the equipment that he needs, we too have been given everything we need in Christ Jesus. But we need to work hard with the, with the grace that God has provided. I'm afraid that for many of us, the Christian life feels like Chadwick's swim. We hear a sermon, we're convicted, and we're encouraged, so we go home determined to strive hard after our growth. But you know what happens next. Later that week, the alarm goes off, and our minds are so full of the fog of another week. The stresses of life, the news of the world, and all the temptation that this life has to bring. But we just heard a sermon about how we need to make every effort to grow. So what happens? Our focus drifts. We turn inward. We begin to strive in our own effort. With our eyes firmly fixed on ourselves, and in so doing, we lose, so, we lose sight of the ultimate goal. Instead of keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, we strive with everything we have only to lose heart in a couple days or even a couple of hours. And this pattern continues, and we quickly realize that we're not growing like we should be, and we become discouraged and weary. Or for some, as our focus turns inward, we create our own list of rules and behaviors that we think will achieve the behavior that God wants from us. As long as we can keep our list, we think we're growing. But instead of true growth, we begin to compare ourselves to others who aren't striving just like we are. And instead of growing in the grace of Christ, we grow in our ability to keep our list. Our ability to keep our list often leads to, pro- to pride and blind spots in our lives. Because we aren't looking to God's standard, instead we're looking to ourselves and others to measure our growth. And whatever the tendency is in your own heart, the problem is almost always the same. Our gaze, which is meant to be fixed on Christ alone, turns inward. The fog of sin clouds our vision and we no longer see the goal. Some quit striving altogether, while others strive hard in the wrong direction. But these two short verses this morning offer us hope. From this passage today, we will see that God has redeemed his people in order that they would bear fruit to his glory. And verse 8 begins by giving us the promise of fruitfulness. And verse 9 gives us the danger of unfruitfulness. 
And tucked away in the warning of verse 9 is a remedy for the fog that often hinders our growth. So let's begin by looking at verse 8. First, we see the promise of fruitfulness. Verse 8 begins by saying, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. In our, in our English versions, this kind of sounds like a conditional statement. But the original construction conveys an assumption that these qualities are indeed present in the life of the believer. These qualities that Peter has described are not optional for the believer. Peter is saying that if you have been redeemed by God, you will bear fruit in your life. And it's important we don't miss the reason why, and this connects back to verse 4, and again what Paul talked about last week. When God rescues us from our sin and justifies us, he makes us partakers of his divine nature. That means that we are now connected to God's life through Christ's righteousness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As the redeemed people of God, he is at work in our lives to restore his image in us, conforming us into the image of Christ. And God's work is effective, meaning that it will produce growth and change in our lives. We have to reject the idea that there are two classes of believers, those who bear fruit and those who just kind of coast along the way. Peter and the whole testament of scripture makes clear that God's people will bear fruit in their lives. And notice what Peter says about these qualities. He says that they are increasing. And I think when we hear the word increasing, we tend to think about the slow, steady incline of our character. We hear that and we might think, well, I'm a little more patient than I was a year ago, so I'm probably doing all right. But increasing carries with it the idea of abundance. Other translations say, if these qualities are yours and abound. Think of a healthy fruit tree with fruit that explodes off the branches. Or think about your neighbor who grows zucchini that's always trying to pawn some off to you. Just as fruit carries seed with it and multiplies, increasing the fruit, so should our lives be characterized by an abundance of growth. And that might be discouraging to hear, right? If we honestly assess our lives, we might see some growth, but we don't often see these qualities just bursting forth in our life. As we assess our growth, we are often aware that there is still much work to do. And I believe that's Peter's point. He wants his audience to keep pressing forward. He wants them to realize that they'll never arrive this side of glory. And why is that? Well, this side of glory, we will never look fully like Christ. We will always be fighting against our sin and flesh. So Peter calls us to a holy dissatisfaction with our growth. He encourages us to keep working, to keep striving, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and his promises as we strive hard to grow in these qualities. And this holy dissatisfaction keeps us from pride. Even when we see growth in our lives, we know that there's still more work to do. And this holy dissatisfaction keeps us from looking down on others or comparing ourselves with others who might not be where we're at. Instead of comparing ourselves to others, we can help encourage those around us to keep striving together towards Christ-likeness. Look back at verse 8. Peter continues and says, For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or to say it positively, if you have these qualities and they abound in your life, you will be effective and fruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is and always has been God's good design for his people. 
And this section reminds me of Christ's own words in John 15, and I believe Peter may have even had these words in his mind when he wrote 2 Peter 1. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Jesus' words from John 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, your, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus' words in John 15 give us three motivations for growth in our life, and Peter echoes these same motivations in this chapter. So three motivations, and these will be quick. First, God is glorified when we bear fruit. That is why God has made us partakers of his divine nature, so that we would reflect his glory in this world. You see, our growth isn't ultimately about us. Our growth isn't meant to make us feel good about ourselves. Our growth isn't meant to make us look better than others. Our growth is about God and his glory. Our heart's natural bent is always to turn inward and become self-focused and self-absorbed. But God calls us to a better way of life. God calls us to live for his glory. If we only pursue growth for our own sake, we will either grow discouraged or proud. But if we pursue growth for the glory of God, we will delight in the opportunity to represent God's glory in the way we live. Second, we see that the fruit of our lives is meant to be a blessing to others. In John 15, Jesus tells us to keep his commandments, and right after that tells us his commandment is to love one another. Peter echoes this as his list of virtues culminates in love. All of these qualities will have an effect in the communities around us that are rooted in love for one another and love for the lost. Our growth will allow us to live out God's design for his church as we strive to love one another, forgive one another, and bear each other's burdens. These qualities are meant to show the world God's good design for our lives. And third, we experience joy when we are fruitful. And this reflects God's good and gracious heart towards us. He has designed our lives such that when we bear fruit in our lives, we will experience his joy. I've thought about this often, the fact that God could have made this any other way. He could have made it so we would just be robotic people following his ways. Or that it could be some joyless life of just self-deprecation and, and misery. But God has made it so that when we live out his design for our life, we will experience his joy. So bear fruit to the glory of God. Bear fruit that would bless those in the church and be a light to those who still do not know God. And bear fruit that you may experience fullness of joy in your life.
Before Peter moves on to verse 9, he ends verse 8 with a reminder that our effort is rooted in the knowledge of Christ. We cannot conjure this fruit on our own. The branch that does not abide in Christ cannot bear fruit. If God has saved us by his grace alone, why would we think we could possibly grow apart from the grace of God? So in order to grow, we must always be connected to Christ's life. And that brings us to verse 9. Verse 9, we see the danger of unfruitfulness. Peter writes, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter is saying that those who do not bear fruit have been blinded. They no longer have the motivation that they once had. The fog of this life has set in, and they, no, they are no longer motivated to keep striving against the current. And in 2 Peter 2.20, Peter warns us that those who persist in their unseeing ways would be better off if they never knew God's grace. Peter writes, For if after they have, uh, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse uh, for them than the first. That is a serious and grave warning. Peter here describes those who, who have lost sight of the goal. They can't see what is in front of them. The blind are so consumed with the present moment and all of its worries. Do you remember the parable of the, of the soils? This is like the seed that fell among the thorns. Initially, it looks like God's word takes root in their lives. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of sin chokes out God's word and it proves to be unfruitful in their lives. Their blindness creates unfruitfulness. And John Piper says this about the condition described here in verse 9. The problem with the person who does not strive toward all the fruit of faith is that he is blind in two directions. When he looks to the future, it's all a haze and the promises of God are swallowed up in a blur of worldly longings. And when he looks to the past, the forgiveness that made him so excited at first is well nigh forgotten, and all he sees is an empty prayer and a meaningless ritual of baptism. In other words, just as in verse 3 the power for godliness throws through the knowledge of God, so in verse 9 blindness to the past and future work of God blocks that power and leaves us limp in the water, drifting toward destruction. So Peter here presents a real warning against apostasy. Blindness that continues will lead to destruction. So how do we avoid this two-directional blindness? First, verse 9 tells us that those who are blind have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. This isn't a forgetfulness like one forgets where you place your keys. This describes a willful forgetfulness in their lives. In other words, the salvation that once meant so much to them means nothing anymore. It has no bearing on their lives. Their focus has shifted from Christ. Their their goal is no longer the glory of God. They simply see themselves as the center of their world, and they strive hard after whatever they can gain in this life. So how do we guard against this? Well, if the condition is forgetting that, that they have been forgiven, the remedy is to remember that you've been cleansed from your sins. And here, Peter is reminding his audience that they have been baptized with Christ. One commentator writes, The cleansing from past sins refers to baptism, where the baptismal waters symbolize the washing away of sins, and hence the forgiveness of sins. So Peter tells us, remember your baptism. 
Now you might be wondering, how does remembering our baptism help us grow in godliness? Well, we have to remember what our baptism represents. And thankfully, the Apostle Paul explains in in good detail what our baptism signifies in Romans chapter 6. Listen to these words. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So our baptism reminds us that we have died to our sinful flesh. We have been recreated. Uh, Sorry, we have died to our sinful desires. We have been united with Christ in his death. And now we have been united with Christ in his resurrection. And why? That we may walk in newness of life. We have been recreated. We have a new purpose. We have new life through Christ Jesus. And because of this new life, we are called to live before God as instruments of righteousness. But you see, we must remember that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were enemies of God. Later in Romans 6, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Before God's grace rescued us, we were enslaved to our desires. And Paul tells us that our desires only brought us death and destruction. But he continues and says, But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we must remember. We must remember that we were dead in our sin and shame, but God being rich in mercy while we were still sinners, while we were still far off, enemies of God, God showed his love for us. And Christ died for us and set us free from our sin. This is why we work and strive hard after growth. Because God has loved us and rescued us from our sin. We don't work hard to try to make God happy with us. We strive hard after these qualities because God is already happy with us in Christ Jesus. And this is why God has given us the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Our baptism was a one-time occurrence that represents our justification in Christ. And for some of us, that was a long time ago. For others of us, that was like two weeks ago. But God has also given us the Lord's Supper, which is an ongoing week-by-week reminder that Christ has died died for us, and it is through Christ's death and life that we now have new life. 
Sinclair Ferguson says this, The whole of the Christian life is centered on Jesus Christ. Like Paul, the contemporary Christian can say, To me, to live is Christ. But often, in Christian experience, we are tempted to look elsewhere for direction, example, counsel, and guidance. We lose sight of the fact that everything we need to live the Christian life is to be found exclusively in Christ. For this reason, when we begin to think about spiritual growth, we must think, first of all, about Christ. The gospel is the root of all of our growth. That is why Peter constantly reminds us that our growth is in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must constantly work to remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every morning, every day, and remind each other about the glorious grace we have been shown through Jesus. That is the remedy to blindness to God's past grace in our lives. But this blindness also clouds our vision to the future hope we have in Christ. And this ties back to the precious and very great promises of God that we see in verse 4. And what are these promises? First, it's the promise that we have seen over the last few weeks, the promise that God has made us partakers of his divine nature and will work in us to conform us into the image of his Son. And it's also the promise of Christ's second coming, where Christ will one day bring to completion all that God has promised to us. It's the hope of future glorification, that one day we will put off this body of flesh and be made like Christ without the hindrances of this life. But we have to keep these promises at the forefront of our mind, because this life with all its legitimate concerns and worries and weights and sorrows will will work to discourage us. Every day, we are faced with so many things that work to cloud our vision to the shoreline of God's promises to us. And if we don't work to maintain our vision, we will lose heart and give up. And I love John Bunyan's portrayal of God's promises in Pilgrim's Progress. Do you remember what happens? Christian and Hopeful are on their way to the celestial city, but the giant despair captures them and beats them relentlessly, almost to the point of death. He even tries to convince Christian and Hopeful to just kill themselves because it would be better to give in than to be tortured by despair. Eventually, the giant threatens to pull them into pieces and Christian is on the verge of losing hope. But then he remembers that he has a key of promise that will open any door in Doubting Castle. So Christian pulls out the key and he easily unlocks the first two doors. But then he gets to the iron gate and Bunyan writes this, and forgive the old English, But that lock went damnable hard, yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed, but that gate, as it opened, made such a cracking that it wakened giant despair, who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail, for his fits took him again, so that he could by no means go after them. And I love this picture of God's promises, because we must work to remember and apply them to our lives. And sometimes the doors open easily. But other times we have to work with all our might to get God's promises to move our stubborn hearts. And even in moving them, despair might rise up in our hearts. But God's promises will not fail if only we will work to apply them to our lives. Because if we're honest, this life is hard. Chesterton wrote that the Christian ideal has not been tried and been found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Friends, do not be discouraged when you find that your growth is slow and at times discouraging. Do not lose heart, but keep looking to the promises of God. 
This is why in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Do you see what Paul is saying? Even as this life works to destroy and discourage us, our inward man can be renewed day by day as we do not look at the temporary things that are right in front of us, but as we look to the future hope that we have in Christ. We look forward to our future glorification with Christ, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians and Peter writes about in 2 Peter. But I think for many of us, future glorification may not be very motivating because we don't fully understand what it means. And like Paul talked about, future glorification means that one day we will be made like Christ without all the hindrances of our flesh. And future glorification also carries the promise of reward for our obedience to Christ. And that's what Paul's writing about in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says that he does not lose heart, even in the midst of suffering, because he knows that his perseverance in suffering will bring an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs his present sufferings. Paul says that God will glorify us for our perseverance and obedience. Now, I don't know exactly what this reward will look like, but I do know this. Paul is saying that every act of obedience, no matter how small or insignificant we might think it is, pleases God. That our striving to do what God has called us to do delights our Heavenly Father. C.S. Lewis says this about the eternal weight of glory. It is written that we shall stand before God, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. I don't know if you've noticed this, but all of these qualities that Peter has listed are needed in adverse circumstances. It's not difficult to be faithful on a sunny Sunday morning when everything is going well. We need faithfulness when everything around us is telling us to give up and throw in the towel. It's not difficult to be virtuous when we're surrounded by fellow believers. We need virtue when we're tempted to give in to our sinful desire. We need true knowledge when doubt and despair begin to well up in our hearts. We need self-control when we are tempted to give in to our flesh. We need steadfastness when we are faced with sorrow and suffering. We need godliness when we are tempted to conform to those world's standards. And we need brotherly love when our brother is unlovely. And we need love for the lost when our hearts are tempted to be cold or indifferent to their condition apart from Christ. These qualities are not easy to exhibit in our lives. It takes effort to produce this fruit. But when we remember that every act of obedience brings delight to God and eternal reward, we can say with Paul, we do not lose heart. We can take heart because no act of obedience goes unnoticed. 
This is so helpful when we feel like we're alone and no one's watching. So why does my character or my obedience really matter? Because God is watching. Not there is a wrathful ruler ready to smite us, but as a father who desires your growth and good and delights in every act of obedience. So we must fight this two-directional blindness and set our hope in Christ. Our hope is firmly rooted in the work of Jesus on the cross that justifies us before God. And our hope looks forward to the day when we will be glorified in heaven. So what must we do to be fruitful in the knowledge of Christ? We must make every effort to grow in Christ-likeness, as verse 5 says. But how do we apply this effort? First, we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We must remember that we have been justified in Christ. We have to remind ourselves that we have died to ourselves, and we have been raised with Christ in newness of life. Because we have died to ourselves, we no longer live for ourselves. Piper said, If these qualities are not your earnest concern, then it is because you have shut your eyes to the beauty of God's promises and have forgotten the humble exhilaration of being forgiven. So remind yourself daily and hourly that you've been forgiven a great debt and now you have been given the great opportunity to live a life to the glory of God. And if you don't know how to preach the gospel to yourself, just start by reading some texts of scripture that lay out the gospel for you. I've been reading and rereading many of these myself. You can write these down if you need a couple references. Romans 3:23 through 28, Romans 5:6 through 11, Romans 6, 1 through 14. You can tell I've been reading a lot of Romans. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, or Titus 3, 3 through 8. So read these passages. Preach them to yourself. And number two, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. When our eyes drift away from Jesus, we will grow discouraged or proud. But looking to, looking to Jesus keeps us from pride as we see His holiness that we cannot achieve apart from God's grace in our lives. Looking to Christ keeps us from from discouragement as we see Jesus, a man who is tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. When we look to Jesus, we see that we have a great high priest seated at the right hand of God. When we look to Jesus, we can with confidence come into God's presence to receive mercy and grace to help us strive hard after growth. So yes, we must strive. Yes, we must run, but we run looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God has created us to be imitators, meaning we become what we behold. And that means if we only behold ourselves, or the news, or social media, or compare ourselves to others, we will become like those things. We become anxious, and discontent, or proud. But when we behold Christ, we see God's glory and design displayed. We behold true beauty that will transform our minds and hearts. When we see Christ, we see our shortcomings and see where we must change to become more like him. Number three, remember God's promises to you in Christ Jesus. This life is hard. What God has called us to is not easy. But God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through Christ Jesus. And God has promised that he will glorify you and and reward you for your obedience to him. So remember his promises to you and remind yourself of them often and remind one another of these promises. Well, two months later, Florence Chadwick 
attempted to swim again. And again, as she neared the shoreline, a dense fog set in. And once again, it looked like the physical and mental strain would be too much. But she pressed on and eventually reached the shore. And afterwards, she said she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind the entire time she swam. We, too, must keep our goal in sight. If we want to faithfully persevere in this life, we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ, striving hard to grow in our knowledge of Him. We have to know there is greater joy to be experienced than all the weights that we carry around with us. We must trust the promises of God, knowing that there is great reward if we endure faithful to the end. So keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us all things that we need for life and godliness. Father, and we are, by this passage, encouraged and convicted to strive hard after our growth. But Lord, we confess that we often focus on the wrong things. We focus on ourselves. We we look to others. We compare ourselves with others. You call us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, to keep our eyes fixed on the hope that you have set before us, knowing that there is joy eternal joy to be had in your presence. Lord, I pray that you would do that in our lives, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, that we would encourage one another to keep our gaze firmly fixed on you. God, as we go uh, forth today, that we just be encouraged by your word and that we would enjoy sweet fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.